Welcome to Amateur Activist. It's your host, Isabella Herrera, and this is the podcast where we attempt to change the world. Every episode, I'll bring you relevant and relatable conversations to equip you to be amateur activists. New episodes every other Friday, so strap in and get ready to dive into big conversations as we embrace our inner activist. Hello, amateur activists, and welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Isabella Herrera, and I am so excited for this week's episode. This week, I sat down with Kevin Nye, author of the newly released book, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. This week, we talk about unhoused people and the epidemic of homelessness. I get to ask Kevin a few questions about his book, the reality that the state's manages homelessness instead of ending it, the biblical call to end the homeless epidemic, and how we as Christians can play a part in ending homelessness. Thank you to each and every one of you that takes the time to tune in and listen to Amateur Activist. I'm so appreciative. If you want to leave me a review and let me know how you're feeling, head over to iTunes or you can use Spotify's new feature and just leave me a star rating. I really appreciate it. Now, Let's get into this episode on Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Amateur Activist. Today, I have Kevin Nye with me. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me. I know you through Twitter as um, an author as um, an advocate, as an avid movie, but specifically Spider-Man fan. Um, And uh, you actually, you have very funny tweets um, and sassy tweets, which like surprises me because they're so interwoven with like advocate and like homelessness, you know, information. And so they're always a nice surprise. But um, could you introduce yourself to those listening who don't have the privilege of following you on Twitter? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I'm 33 years old. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I was, until recently, I lived in Los Angeles, California. Uh, and that is where I got started working in um, the realm of homelessness uh, and trying to address it and end it. Uh, I carried that work with me to Minneapolis, um, but around, yeah, around the time of COVID, well, right before COVID started, I decided that I wanted to write a book um, specifically aimed at people of faith uh, to try to uh, bring bring parts of myself together. You know, I grew up in the church and I, I studied for, for ministry. And did basically everything except get ordained, uh, and ended up pivoting to to homeless services. So, um, writing this book was sort of like bringing my whole self together, um, and writing kind of back to my community all the things that I've been learning about, uh, you know, what causes homelessness, what prevents it, and what uh, can end it. Um earlier this month, which I guess this book is like, he's mentioned the culmination of all those things. And you do, the book is, does such a great job of answering just those questions of what causes homelessness, what ends it, and what can we as people of faith, um, 
do to be a part of ending it. But um, I would love to go back to before you're working in this area and with this community. Um, could you expand on like what background you come from or what passions or like you mentioned, you did everything um, to become, I guess, an ordained minister. But mm -hmm. was there were those parts of yourself that align with what you do now, or was there this big shift that happened that you now find yourself um, doing what you do? Yeah, it was definitely gradual. And, and to the point that by the time that, you know, I was, um, I was stepping away from the ordination process, I was already working in this field and it just felt like a natural mm. next chapter. Um, so yeah, I was I was in the process of ordination in the Church of the Nazarene, um, and yeah, eventually I got to a point with them, and I'd already started working in homeless services because I just wasn't seeing myself in kind of a traditional ministry role. Um, I had hopes for that, and I definitely I could imagine one, but um, just kind of it wasn't happening for a lot of reasons. Uh, and then I just got to a place with the denomination where, you know, they were starting to have really um, tough questions about, you know, some controversial topics. Um, it's I always think it's helpful to name that this was all happening in 2016, which is the year Trump got elected. Um, and that year just kind of held for so much American Christian culture, like everyone kind of choosing their side and mm. like putting up defenses and sort of like litmus testing one another on who was in and who was out. Um, and, and yeah, essentially it was kind of decided that I was, that I wasn't in. Um, mm. And so that, uh, that made it really easy for me to, well, I shouldn't say it made it easy. It was actually one of the hardest things in my entire life. But but I was already working in in homelessness, and I'm fortunate that I wasn't dependent on the denomination for like my salary or my job or anything like that. And so, in some ways, it was very natural to just lean into the thing I was I was already doing that was giving me life and and fulfillment and. Um, in both a, you know, career sense, but also in a, a spiritual you know, theological sense. Right. I, so obviously, so I'm American <laughs> for any, for listeners that don't know or haven't picked that up by now, but I'm living in Australia. And so um, I also have listeners that are Australian and their only perception of, um, I guess, American homelessness is through media or through like, film or news. Um, and so could you paint a bit of a picture, provide a bit of context when it comes to understanding um, the homelessness that you kind of talk about in your book, um, especially specifically in Los Angeles, which is also where I come from originally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, homelessness is... I'm trying to think of what a interesting way it would be to only learn about it through, you know, through media coverage. Cause in some ways, like the media and we, we know this about media in general, they fixate on, you know, extreme 
cases and uh, outliers, um, but it's also it's enough to say about Los Angeles, especially that what's happening in Skid Row, uh, primarily, but really across all of Los Angeles, is it's an absolute human rights disaster. I mean, the yeah. um, there was a I write about this in the book. There was a um, a, an appointed UN representative who came to tour Skid Row in 2016 or 17 um, and remarked that he had not seen those that level of human suffering since apartheid South Africa. Yeah. Um, and, and that I think is something that when you live there, you'd sort of grow numb to in a way that you almost have an advantage being on the outside looking in and going, what is going on here? How, how are we letting this happen? Um, but yeah, I mean, homelessness really, especially in Los Angeles, but uh, across especially coastal cities in America is directly connected to the rising cost of housing um, and the, the stagnant wages and stagnant income that, uh, that folks have been experiencing for a long time. Uh, where housing is more expensive, homelessness goes up. Where housing is more affordable, homelessness goes down. Yeah, that uses actually great segue because one of the most, there were like two really confronting and uncomfortable parts of your book that um, I was probably unexpected when I was like looking through the chapters. And it was the first one had to do with housing and the second one had to do with addiction. And mm-hmm with the housing chapter, it was one of those things that it, I didn't realize the, I guess the extent of my bias or the stereotypes I had regarding the unhoused community and, you know, their lack of access to housing. And I also didn't realize that I would get so comfortable reading about like this idea or the concept of housing first. Mm -hmm. Um, and you also, um, I can't remember where it is in the book, but you talk about the theology of um, land and land and housing. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about like where that comes from and maybe how, like, how do we practically utilize and outwork that? So there are a number of really great theologians who have been doing um, this work in the last, I would say, like 30 years or so. Uh, one of them is Walter Brueggemann, uh, and I use, I reference him a lot in, in the book and quote him a couple times. Um, he has a book called The Land, uh, which is all about really tr- tracing the theology of land throughout the Old Testament. Um, and then the other one that I don't, I don't directly reference, but really influenced my my work and my understanding is Willie Jennings. Mm. Uh, he wrote a great book called The Christian Imagination, which is largely about um, colonialism um, and, and tells a lot of different stories of, you know, specifically how um, faith and early, not early, but um, the early days of uh, American discovery, quote unquote, um, how that was influenced by a particular form of Christianity mm-hmm. that uh, was divorced from an understanding of place 
mm-hmm. um, and how that allowed colonialism, enslavement, and all of these other evils. Um, and so for, for Jennings, it's so, it's crucial that the gospel, that Christianity be uh, linked again to, to place and geography mm-hmm. and people's connection to land. So putting those things together and, and recognizing how much uh, the Bible is about a particular people living in a particular place or particular places. I mean, you can, you can tell the entire story of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament with a map, you know, yeah. and <laughs> where people started, where they went to, where they were exiled from and to and back. Um, and yet when we, I can't remember the last time I've heard a sermon about land or geography or space that wasn't just using like, you know, interesting Bible (laughs) maps to like help contextualize a story, but, but where the actual point was that, that God has something to say, um, about the spaces that we inhabit and, and what we do with them. Um, and I, I just make a very simple declaration in the book that's actually said multiple times throughout scripture, which is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Mm. Um, and that's such an important declaration, especially against our, our cultures today that, uh, really claim land (laughs) and claim (laughs) ownership over over land over space in a way to extract wealth and profit from it regardless of the outcome and it's gotten to the point where it's such a part of our understanding and our like economy (laughs) that that we don't even second guess it like the idea the idea of like being wealthy buying a house that you don't need so that you can then rent it at a higher price to people um, just seems like that's just good business. <laughs> right. And, uh, and we never stop and question like, oh, if, if, if we do that on a large scale, are we taking home ownership away from an entire group of people mm-hmm. and extracting their wealth from them to make ourselves more wealthy while we keep them from being able to build any generational wealth. Um, And those are just questions that we don't ask that actually like the book of Leviticus has a lot to say about that, about who gets to own land and what happens when someone goes into debt and how communities can make it so that people who go into debt get out of debt and who lose land can regain land. All that stuff that's really boring and we skip because it is a little bit boring and repetitive, but like, so are laws and we need them, (laughs) you know? Is it that same culture that you just mentioned of, you know, wanting to make a profit regardless of kind of, you know, who it affects or even really doubting, you know, is this actually the right thing to do? Is it that same culture that, makes people almost instinctively defensive or uncomfortable with the idea of housing first of offering um i guess free housing to the unhoused in order to get them stability and um 
to get them the basic, <laughs> like, I guess, rights of having a place to lay your head that's safe and stable. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, so much of the, you know, American dream <laughs> narrative yeah. is is around home ownership. It's mm. the house with the yard and the white picket fence, you know, and yeah. and that was so turned into a dream that was then, you know, then utilized as a sign of having made it, of being successful, of being in, right? That uh, we don't really question how we got it, what what privileges allowed us to do that, what uh, what law was passed that allowed some people, namely white people, to get no interest or low interest uh, mortgages that was not afforded to people of color uh, who yeah. were explicitly denied it or only allowed to do it in particular neighborhoods that weren't invested in. Um, and so it's to the extent that so many people, particularly white Americans, uh, have have believed a, a narrative about how they got their housing that right. largely is about how hard they worked or that they did everything right. They right. played the game, the system the right way and have received their reward <laughs> for that. Um, and so then the idea of somebody in their eyes doing it wrong or being unsuccessful and still getting that. Um, yeah, it just, it, it makes it, it, it cuts at that that myth and what we've believed kind of about ourselves. Yeah, 100%. And it's something that until you are like explicitly confronted with it, like in the book, at least for me, it was like, oh, I didn't even realize that I had these like <laughs> this, you know, stuff that I was carrying that I would feel so uncomfortable with just the concept of it. Um, and it wasn't until then that I was like, OK, let's sit back and think about why you actually feel this way and is it even grounded and the answer was <laughs> no <laughs> um one of the key reminders that i found throughout the book was this reminder of regardless of someone's housing status that they are still human and that they deserve um rights just like every other human and mm -hmm. Um, that some of our language regarding the unhoused community is in fact humanizing or can be dehumanizing. And so in the beginning of your book, you talk about your reasons why you use specific um, terms and phrases. And could you just briefly explain why you use those phrases here on the podcast? Sure. And I always, I always started off by saying that this is what I use and why I use it. And I'm not a person that polices what other people use. And that's largely because the people who are the most, I would say inconsistent or flippant and don't care so much about the language that's used are the people that we're talking about, people experiencing yeah. homelessness. Uh, but I also think that language shapes who we are as the speakers. Um, and so that's why I choose to use the language I do. So I either use um, the phrase people experiencing homelessness as opposed to homeless people. Um, 
that's largely uh, it's what we call person first language is it, it acknowledges the person uh, and then it categorizes homelessness as an experience rather than an identity marker. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how we understand the English language, when you say a homeless person, that word homeless is occupying that adjectival form that we normally associate with permanent characteristics. Uh, and so I think if we say homeless people, homeless people, we're talking, our, our brains are, whether we realize it or not, sort of categorizing them as a particular type or class of person rather than that they are a person who is going through a particular experience that might be temporary. Right. Um, the other one I'll use, and you've probably heard me use already, is uh, unhoused or unhoused people. And that one doesn't do person-first language, so that's one drawback to it. Um, but what I like about unhoused, one is it's fewer words. <laughs> uh, I learned very quickly when writing, if you use people experiencing homelessness every time, you <laughs> fill up pages really fast. Um, but what unhoused does is, one, it kind of shakes our brains loose of the the patterns that get formed when we say homeless people over and over again. And we kind of that word and that phrase just brings this whole wealth of images and everything we've quote unquote learned about homeless people. Right. Mm-hmm. When we say unhoused, it like, because we're not used to it, it like, like shocks our brain for a second and makes us think about it differently. Um, mm-hmm. But also I like that, uh, by saying unhoused rather than homeless, uh, instead of putting the sort of etymological fault on the person for not having a home, hmm. uh, it turns housed into, um, gosh, and I was just doing so well, and now my grammar class is failing me. Um, <laughs> But housed is is a participle, which means that uh, it's putting the impetus on the community to house everyone in the community. Mm. So if someone is unhoused, it's not because they, it's not saying they don't have housing. The implication of that word structure is that they have not been housed by the Mm. external forces that should be responsible or should have an obligation to make sure that everyone has housing. Right. You, um, I think you allude to it in the, in the book. Um, but I, I like just looked up the, see if I could find like a proper number, but the national Alliance to end homelessness had like a rough estimate of $51 billion that the United States spent last year in 2021, um, towards, uh, I believe it was homelessness and housing, uh, I'm blanking on the word programs or uh, yeah. Outreach. Um, and in your book, you write that, you know, if we're already spending the money managing homelessness, why not just end it? Like if the, if we're already using billions of dollars, um, towards, I guess, to programs and to, to things that are, you know, like, like managing, 
And I guess like the big question is why not? And I, and I, your book is, is called, you know, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Um, what, it's a big question, but why not just end it? Then I guess also like, what does ending it even look like? Like practically, I think it can be romanticized of Mm -hmm. like, let's just all end homelessness, easy peasy, done. But what is the practical, like, what does that actually look like? Yeah. Well, uh, I would say there's no good reason why not. Uh, but I can tell you that the reasons that we don't are a lot of what we've been talking about. It's, um, it's ideological. It's, mm. it's ultimately that we, we believe deep down that, you know, people don't deserve it. Um, mm. So, I mean, the, the number you mentioned um, probably doesn't even scratch the surface for what we actually spend, because mm. those numbers are probably what we spend on housing vouchers, on street outreach, on you know, permanent supportive housing, shelters. Um, but the numbers that we often don't talk about are the, the amount of money that we spend hospitalizing people yeah. who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, because they don't have health care. So when they when they get sick, when they get injured, when they go to the hospital, we just foot that bill. Right. Uh, when they get arrested, incarcerated, that's expensive. And these are, and I'm talking about arrests and incarceration and just the general policing that takes place, not for like actual crimes like assault right. and theft, but, but the crimes that we make up crimes that are just related to homelessness, like loitering, like having a tent out on the sidewalk, like having a shopping cart, the amount of money we spend to on, on courts, on police, on jail, mm. on prison for stuff like that, that again, add all that money together. And now mm. we're talking about a ton of money that could just be used to house people. Right. And so when we talk about ending homelessness, I mean, I think, and I mentioned this in the book that ending homelessness doesn't mean that we also have dealt completely with mental illness, that we've dealt completely with substance use and addiction, that we've dealt completely with poverty even. Right. But rather what it means is that we've decided that no one should have to experience any of those things while living outside on the streets. Right. Um, we house everybody and then we work on those things. Right. Um, and so if we had, one, the will to do it, and two, the housing to do it, the dedicated, accessible, low barrier housing to actually do that, then what ending homelessness would be what we call net zero, uh, which is not that never over the course of a year does anybody sleep outside ever, ever. It means that homelessness, when it does happen, it's one, it's rare, mm. two, it's brief. And three, it's non-reoccurring. So mm. we don't see homelessness very often. When we do, we have the infrastructure to immediately surround that person with housing and then care and support. And that care and support is so good that they don't fall back. Right. You just briefly mentioned, you know, that when we, if we deal with housing first, then we can actually put, I guess, time and energy and resources into then um, helping with mental health and or mental illness and um, addiction. And 
like I previously mentioned, the chapter on addiction was another one of the most confronting aspects of the book and regarding like my bias and again, my like, I guess my ignorance of it all. And in the book you write, and I've just written this down so I don't misquote it. We have built our Christian philosophy of addiction on theological ideas that corner us into moralizing drugs and the people who use them to such an extent that the only available response is judgment and punishment. And I remember I read that like four or five times because it was like almost nauseating realizing like that as people of faith, as the church that we, that yeah, we've moralized to the point where we are, we're judging it a massive amount of people and not just addicts, but specifically addiction within the unhoused community. And I was thinking back in preparation for this episode of like, where did this bias or this ignorance come from? And I remember just being this, I, this, I guess this attitude of, well, if they're homeless, then they must have already been addicts. And not once was it ever communicated to me either explicitly or implicitly that, Maybe the addiction was, um, I guess, a, a a byproduct of being homeless, that there was just so much trauma within living on the streets or not having housing, et cetera, et cetera, that addiction then occurred. And then there was also this like narrative of, well, we don't give money to people on the streets because they'll, of course, use it for drugs and alcohol. And we like can't have that because... You know, we need to be giving them food or toothbrushes or, you know, we just can't give them money. We don't trust them. And it wasn't until this chapter that 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 narrative was confronted, but also that, I guess, a um, opposing narrative that you brought was even brought to my attention of like, we don't have to have... Um, all or nothing attitudes regarding sobriety or addiction in general, but specifically with those experiencing homelessness. Um, and I would just, if you could just talk briefly, I guess, or expand on like, is this attitude of celebrating the small wins of celebrating, you know, um, moments of sobriety or acknowledging that addiction is, um, a brain disease is that the right term is that what the yeah is that more is that becoming more common or is that still such a minority thought process or minority attitude it's kind of both at the same time which is really interesting because i mean and this is how this is how culture works right and how minds are changed is that most of the time we don't just go from one belief system to then being confronted with the complete opposite one and making a full switch. And then right. that's even just as individuals, right? Then when you talk yeah. about culture. So I will say, like, talking about addiction as a disease is way more common right now yeah. than it ever was. Talking about uh, being able to celebrate small victories, moving away from, uh, you know, just complete shaming and judging people like we are getting slightly better at that we have not fully and it will be a long time before we fully uh 
embrace all of the implications of of what would be true if we actually believe that right? right and um and i think a lot of that is due to the just the dominant culture of aa mm. uh, and um yeah and 12-step programs um and it's hard to talk about those in a critical way because they've helped so many people. Um, And I I mentioned in the book that my my recommendation is not to scrap AA or 12-step, but it's actually to acknowledge the things that they do really well Mm. and acknowledge that they have worked and do work for a lot of people, but then ask the question, what about all the people that it doesn't work for? and and to really like take a critical look and say like what are the things that maybe it gets wrong because you know it was it was thought up it was dreamt up and operationalized you know over a hundred years ago before we had good like neurological studies on how chemicals affect affect the brain frankly it was before we had a lot of the drugs (laughs) that we're dealing with on yeah, the streets today yeah. uh, or or they didn't exist to the strength that we now have them on the yeah. streets right um and so that particular methodology says pretty much sobriety or or nothing yeah. um and that's something that i think we really need to rethink while also celebrating and recognizing the things that it does really well, like prioritizing community, um, having meetings where people all feel like they're on an equal playing field, have equal opportunity to share and talk and that it's free and that you could literally close your eyes and point on a map and find an AA meeting within five miles, you know? Like those are things that are amazing and and worth celebrating, and yet the the dominant cultural hold is also influences our our views of what works. Yeah, you may not know the answer to this, but it just was like were AA meetings, especially within like the unhoused community during COVID. How was that navigated, or how was that? Um, was it dealt with well at all? I mean, I can't imagine that it was. <laughs> no, and and I don't I don't blame anyone yeah. for it. Like, and that's the thing. Like, so many services uh, for people yeah. experiencing homelessness stopped for COVID because so many of them are run by volunteers and run in churches and run in communal settings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people that didn't have access to technology. You know, a lot of a lot of great AA happened on Zoom, I'm sure, but it wasn't widely attended by people experiencing homelessness, right? Right. So, um, and that's something that I think I write about in the conclusion of the book as one of the lessons I took from COVID is I had already abandoned this myth that we hear a lot in the U.S. that oh, the government shouldn't be doing that; the church should be the one doing it. Well, COVID blew that myth (laughs) out the door for me because the only services that stayed around were the ones that were funded by the government. Right. Um, And, 
all the churches, rightfully so, had to, you know, figure out how to keep themselves safe, you know, mm. um, and so much stuff went away. But what are we meant to be looking for systemically in order to change things? Like, wh- or what laws are we meant to be like, mm, that doesn't seem like that's actually helpful. Um, mm-hmm. What do we advocate for in regards to, um, I guess, the big goal ending homelessness, but I guess the smaller goal of actually keeping the unhoused community as like our priority and not mm-hmm. our like personal comfort. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, systemically we need, we need affordable housing. We need a lot of it. We need every type of it. We need low income housing. We need permanent supportive housing. We need, you know, tax credit housing, like everything we, and you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in how a housing policy works on a macro level. So I don't, I don't go out of my way in my book to advocate for specific policies like rent control. Um, although I would vote for rent control today if it were on the ballot. Um, and something I say in the book, in the voting guide that I wrote for just this reason, mm-hmm. uh, is that we need to be willing to try <laughs> some things that we haven't tried and even get something wrong because what we're currently doing is not working and it's yeah. failing so catastrophically that I'm willing to be wrong <laughs> on something (laughs) like rent control or something like raising the minimum wage, because we have to try things um, to get us out of, out of where we're in. Um, And then I would say on sort of the micro level of how do we make sure that we're keeping unhoused communities safe while we work toward those long-term things uh, we need to stop sweeps, (laughs) uh, which are when, police and sanitation show up and throw everybody's things away and make people move along. Uh, We have to stop that. Um, It slows down case management. It destroys hope. It destroys dignity. It Mm. destroys any progress that that person was making toward getting off the streets because you probably just threw away their ID uh, and all their belongings and all the things that they needed to work their way uh, toward help. Um, We need to stop uh, yeah, mandated shelters. We need to stop making laws that say you can't sleep in your car or park overnight. Like there's all these laws that are sort of, um, disguised as public safety or, Mm -hmm. uh, cleaning up the city, cleanliness, Um, And they're all just buzzwords for we want the the well-off people who live indoors to not have to confront or see or experience the the victims of the way that we've arranged our community. Yeah. I when I was living in Los Angeles confronted with the reality of just like you just mentioned the way that um, the city has dealt with um, housing, but also just how heartbreaking it is that there are what feels like millions of people on the street and then moving to Sydney, Australia, where there are obviously homeless people 
Um, but I live in the suburbs and I <laughs> don't think I've come across a single person living on the streets in the f- almost five years that I've lived here. And so community and building relationships and um, I can't remember how you phrase it in your book, but connecting um, your well-being to the well-being of like someone else that's unhoused just doesn't seem possible unless I am traveling to the city, which is an hour or so away to then create those relationships. It's not consistent, et cetera, et cetera. What can people like me who are just, who seem very disconnected from the unhoused community do to still be community and still have relationship with people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one, just recognizing that the way that cities like that are, are arranged geographically is on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't know as much about this in Sydney as I do in the U S but I'm sure it's a very similar, (laughs) uh, very similar story that these suburbs were largely built to, for certain people to get away from certain other people. Mm. Um, And that there are official and unofficial systems in place that keep it that way. Yep and keep keep wealth in certain areas and keep it away from other areas Mm. so and i don't expect any one person like yourself to undo all of those systems right like it is not uh your job isabella to you know uh completely change the entire map of sydney australia and you know re redraw all of the lines and the ordinances that say who lives where and redistribute everybody's wealth right um but we need to be aware of how those things are functioning Mm -hmm. uh and find ways that are small and sometimes big to to upend them Mm -hmm. to to move some of that, move money in the direction it's not supposed to go, mm. move people in the direction that they're not supposed to go. Um, and just, I think, sort of create, you know, what I would call like holy disruptions to that mm. system. And, and when they're met with resistance, you know, get on the right side of it. And I think that's, that's the... And maybe this is just me as a like an international. I didn't grow up here, so I'm being almost transplanted from a community where it is almost so in your face that you can numb yourself to the reality of the community of people experiencing homelessness in LA. Um, and then to move here and have it be like, is this the norm? Like, is this just I have lived my life for four and a half years in a very comfortable suburban part of Sydney and um, just now going, something needs to shift because this is like, it's just so disconnected from a community of people that not only are full of uh, life and full of um, really great people seeking relationship and community, 
but also like as a person of faith, I have a responsibility to living in such a way that our, our destinies are, you know, are, are together, are, ca- are caught up in, in one another. Yeah. And so I think that, and then I think also there's, there's value in that wrestle of figuring out, okay, well, I'm in a very privileged, um, disconnected space physically, but I'm going to figure out how to wrestle with that either theologically or literally wrestle and try to get myself in community so that it actually not only is, you know, saviorism tactics, we don't want that, but it, it's, it's a genuine care and concern for other people. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and going back to what I was talking about with really Jennings and what he talked about with connection to geography. I think that people who live in suburbs and, you know, suburbia <laughs> type spaces are some of the most deeply disconnected yeah. people from, from the land. And yeah. And not just that they're disconnected from the urban downtown areas, but that they don't, they don't have a, a connection to the place that they actually live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't, they, they, uh, you know, have lawns trying to grow grass that cannot grow naturally in yeah. that environment. So they put fake grass <laughs> to give the appearance that, they live in a climate that they don't live in, yeah. right? It's it's all of these ways that we like uh, we're fighting against rather than you know working with the the land and the people that that live in it and, and mm. you know people who I'm, I'm generalizing but I think it's largely true that you know people who live in suburbs don't know their neighbors very yeah. well. Um, and make it a point to not know their neighbors and have, you know, fences lined with shrubbery so that no one ever has to see them and they never have to see anyone, you know? Yep. Um, and that's just, uh, it's just a sad way to live. It's not, it's a dehumanizing way to live. And mm. I think that's, that's something that I was kind of trying to get a hold of, but that I'm still kind of wrestling with is, all of the ways that yes, we, we dehumanize um, unhoused people and we are dehumanized in the process, but also all of the ways that we seek to run away from, from that experience. Mm-hmm. We're actually, we're, we're pursuing something that's actually maybe less human than mm-hmm. what people who are, um, who are really hurting and are thus dependent on one another um are able to find things like community things like connection and rootedness to to a particular neighborhood Mm. um yeah i'm still figuring out exactly how to articulate all of that maybe that's part of the next book but yeah Ooh. (laughs) no but you bring up a great point is we you know we don't even put in the time and effort to get to know or to actually connect and care for the people that live right next to us. It's our actual neighbor. Um, How can we even begin to put time and energy and effort and resource into getting to know the air quotes neighbor that 
you know, for me lives an hour away in a completely different area of, of the city I live in. Yeah. And one of the, um, a really beautiful story and I blanking on the name, but of, um, when you're doing the, uh, when you're teaching people how to use the kits that I'm also blanking on the name of. <laughs> Narcan. Yes. Yeah. And, um, after learning about how to use them goes directly to his neighbor and, you know, tells them that he knows how to use these and he can be of a help. And then the next day is able to be of help. That story is beautiful because of the fact that, and I think you mentioned in the book that he had that relationship with his neighbor. And I, um, it's always challenging, especially when, you know, it's a mandate in the Bible, but also when you just don't outwork that practically to love your actual neighbor, um, how can you begin to, you know, even wrap your head around the idea of loving your non-literal, you know, neighbors? Yeah. Anyways, um, I guess to wrap up this conversation, the, the very end of your book, um, you talk about um, the parable of the sower and this idea that, you know, we love to identify ourselves with which soil we're at and it's rooted in judgment and, you know, kind of, well, I'm good soil or, and then we attribute characteristics of what bad soil looks like, but you focus on the, um, God is the sower and what that actually implies about God. And so I'd love to, as the last question, I would love if you could chat about or explain, um, the importance of God's grace and how as the house community committed to helping end homelessness, how we can take our experience of God's grace and extend that to the unhoused community. Yeah, I, I conclude with that, uh, that parable because um, that parable to me, like you said, we, we, grew up hearing that sermon being about what kind of soil are you? You know, are you good soil? This is what good soil looks like. Are you the middle soil that, you know, kind of hears the word of God, but doesn't let it really take root and is blown away by the the things of this world, you know, <laughs> or are you bad soil to begin with and, and had no chance, right? Um, when in that story, the soil has no agency <laughs> at all. The soil is not a character in that story. Um, the soil is a product of its environment um, mm. and plants either grow or they don't. Um, and what that story is really about is a farmer who's God, who's willing to throw seeds on all kinds of soil and see what happens. Mm. Um, and that to me, it's a much better sermon it's a much better story um and it's consistent with the story of scripture all around is that you know we you know we, we confess a god who doesn't see particular types of soil and say i'm i'm not going to bother um that that recognizes and and hopes and dreams um that however we might assess people um that we can still offer them uh, kindness, grace, gifts, housing, mm. opportunity, 
money, yeah. <laughs> um, all these tangible and intangible things, and and hope and pray that uh, the good things come of it. Um, and I'd even go a step further to say, and um, I think I talk about this in the addiction chapter, um, and it's this idea, or and in the housing chapter, that actually the giving of good things like housing, like opportunity, like non-judgment and acceptance actually is transformative. Mm. Um, and again, that's what we've always believed about about God, right? That that God, Jesus, however we conceive of, of, you know, theologically offers us something that's so good that receiving it transforms everything about who we are and how we see the world. Mm. Um, and that, that is true about everything. Thank you, Kevin, for taking the time out of your day and your week to sit down with me and chat about your new book, which is out on, I believe, I'm going to say everything, but I believe on everything, Amazon, um, Mm -hmm. Barnes and Noble, Mm -hmm. um, for those of us in Australia, Amazon, um, Australia, um, Booktopia, and I believe Book Depository. Um, Go get it because it's a phenomenal book and I am just waiting for mine to arrive. Um, But thank you, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. And for the rest of you, I will see you next week with a brand new episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this episode was relevant and relatable and that there was something in here that you can take into the everyday part of your life that can help impact an aspect of your world and you can be your own version of an amateur activist. See you next time. Thank you.